Welcome to the Whiskey Congress. Honest, open talk dedicated to speaking the truth to those who are open to hearing it. Black, white, right, left. Most importantly, honest, bold, and fueled by good whiskey. In Whiskey Veritas, we are Whiskey Congress. Join the evolution. Whiskey Congress is back in session. Um, It's a little different show than normal because... Steve is not able to be here, and he was really bummed because he really wanted to talk to our guest. Our guest is Dick Kaplan, an accomplished author and just a really interesting guy uh, with a a political view that I'm eager to banter about or discuss. So anyway, Dick, thank you for coming on the show very much. Appreciate it. Um, I know who we got introduced because of my cousin Jeff, who is also an interesting guy, but... I don't want him on my show, but I'm glad to have you on the show. So, <laughs> how are you? First of all, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Um, Thank you. Same to you. And uh, and if, if if you want to get, I would try to go through your bio, but I'll screw it up. So if I mean your 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 bio is fascinating between the uh, university work and and um, your political influences or political interests and the martial art, martial arts background, I'm. Really eager right. to learn more about you, but let me throw the ball into your court and say thank you for coming on to Whiskey Congress, and um, let's talk about your writing. Well, uh, first, I'm uh, first and foremost a business person. I've done, I specialized in startups and turnarounds my whole life, and um, but I've also been very interested in in uh, helping communities. So I'm I'm presently on about sixteen uh, on sixteen not for profit boards. Um, and um, I enjoy that, and I think it's important, and I've learned a lot from it. Uh, I've been involved in charter schools. I'm very involved with education, uh, very involved with health care, uh, a, a number of things. So, But first and foremost, I'm a business person, retired now. Okay. And uh, working on the, the system we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on health care because it's a very, uh, an issue I'm very passionate about. And I find it very disappointing that we as a country are the only civilized country without some kind of a social health care system. Um, and I know that's controversial because, you know, everything goes through private insurance. Um, where, where, do, where do you come out on that? Well, the caring system, which is the system we come up have, uh, are talking about, uh, takes care of that. And actually, it's fairly easy, but you have to really understand how the whole system works in order to understand uh, how it affects healthcare. But basically, uh, what happens is uh, under our system is everybody has healthcare, and uh, it, it, people that can't afford it, they're taken care of uh, by uh, making sure that they get healthcare insurance and good healthcare insurance. So everybody gets, you know, a, a good quality uh, insurance policy. From the healthcare uh, health insurance companies, uh, but that saying that does not answer your question really. The, the, the big thing is how it works, how it raise, how the organizations raise money, which is a very unique new way of doing things, and how we can create a uh, uh, what we call the basis of caring, which is a joy in giving and a dignity in receiving. That is really the basis of what caring has to do, and that really is the basis of what our problem is now. Uh, people, uh, most taxpayers do not enjoy paying taxes because they feel they're throwing their money into this dark abyss 
that they have very little control of, that they see so much waste in. Uh, so you have uh, very unhappy taxpayers. And the people receiving the money uh, receive it almost with resentment uh, because of the way it's given. Uh, supposedly, it, it, it's their right uh, and their entitlement. Instead, what it really is is uh, a gift from people that really care about them, that love them, and that want to take care of them and want to make sure they're taken care of properly. And if they receive it that way, they can receive it with pride. Uh, just having money thrown at you and telling you it's an entitlement steals people's dignity. And so that's one of the things the caring system does is bring back or bring a joy of giving and dignity and receiving. Uh, but health care is one of the easiest things to solve. But you really have to go through the system, and I can explain that as we go along a little later in the yeah, but Please, please do. The when, when, you, when you talk about the caring, uh, caring group, is that, I hope I didn't screw that up. The Institute for Caring is in, the name okay. of our nonprofit. Institute for Care. Please, please give a, a kind of a rundown of that. You want me to give a rundown about it? Yes, please. Well, maybe we should start uh, with what it's trying to solve. Okay. Uh, what is the problem? Um, uh, we, I actually, uh, I'll tell you how this started. I, I used to, uh, my first company uh, was a carpet company, retail carpet company that my dad had started. And that was, um, he started in 1948, actually. Uh, wow. My dream in all through school and everything was to create a nationwide carp a chain of car retail carpet stores. And uh, I took over the company in 72. Uh, in 1983, I'm from Rochester, New York. We had companies in, uh, we had stores in uh, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and a few smaller ones in the neighborhood, neighboring counties and things. But uh, my goal was to go national. And in 1983 and 84 is when I really started looking uh, at the Northeast, especially Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, all the, the larger uh, cities and some of the smaller ones uh, in the Northeast. Uh, but in doing my due diligence, uh, I started to realize that the last thing the country needed and would need in the future are more brick-and-mortar uh, retail stores, especially carpet stores. Um, this was when uh, we first were seeing Social Security uh, come into question. It's when we were starting to have these, uh, these deficits every year. Uh, we could see our education system, our health care systems were starting to, to fail. Um, and I realized taxes were going to have to go up significantly to – uh, you know, I never dreamed of having a $30 trillion debt, right. uh, nor did our founding fathers, I believe. But anyway, so I, I felt actually what I should do is actually sell the company while it was doing well instead of trying to expand it, which is what I did. Uh, and it made me angry, though. And it was my, uh, my grandfather's name was on the, uh, the company. My dad started it, used my grandfather's name. And it was my dream. So I was one of these guys that got was very angry at government, uh, called, you know, if somebody would get me going, you know, I'd say how stupid government is, how our representatives are ruining our country, and we need more business people in government. And I was uh, out to lunch with an associate one day, and he started me going, which wasn't hard to do. And he put his hand up, and he said, do you have a solution to any of this? And I said, well, no. <laughs> he said, I can't repeat exactly what he said, but he said, uh, oh, oh, up, just, just, just to be clear. You can drop all the F-bombs you want on our show. <laughs> I usually don't do that. But okay. he said, and it was an F-bomb, he said, would you please shut up? I'm getting tired of hearing about it. And I sat back, and I realized he's right. You know, uh, pissing and moaning about a problem uh, never solved anything. Uh, 
And I realized that there really was no solution. As a matter of fact, we didn't really even understand what the problems were. What started me on a quest, um, one of the first people I talked to, I had just met, oddly enough, a, a professor at uh, the University of Rochester in public policy. He actually um, wrote the book that most public policy freshmen use throughout the country. Very bright guy. And so I called him, asked if I could talk to him. Uh, and then there was another gentleman who was uh, chairman of um, – political science at Alfred University, a very good reputation, very bright guy, and I asked him if I could talk to him. And I started talking to a lot of people, academics, politicians, business people, trying to figure out why this is happening. Why, why does everything seem to be failing? And doing research, I realized that this happens to every democracy in history. Uh, there's not a democracy in history that has lasted. And looking at it, it they all fail the same way, the way we are. Um, so that's what started me on this quest. And, um, you know, the first problem, in, in, we came out with our first book, I'll explain who we are in a minute, but in 1998. And when I started talking to people about this, I used to spend the first half hour trying to explain to them there's a big problem. <laughs> but today, I don't have to do that anymore. As a matter of fact, the first thing I ask people uh, that I talk to is, do you think there's a chance this country could collapse in the next 20 years? Literally collapse. And... 75% at least say it won't take 20 years. Uh, we have a debt that's at $30 trillion now. In 20 years, it'll be over $50 trillion. That's assuming we don't have another pandemic or another war or whatever. Uh, it, we can't exist with that. Uh, we won't have enough money for Social Security. We won't have enough money for health care, education, not even the military. Nothing will, will, be, will happen, and we'll have to stop these, these, these programs. And plus, what's worse is we're polarizing as a people. We're creating hate and violence, complete disrespect for our government and our institutions. Uh, when you put those two things together, it, it spells revolution of some sort. And as I say, every democracy in history has failed, and when you look at it, they failed from the same things. So that's what the problem is, and uh, th 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 that's where we find ourselves. We actually started a, a, a metaphor came to me uh, years ago, late 80s, as a matter of fact. It's called The Wagon Story, and it's in our book. Uh, but I'll, I'll just tell it real quickly, because it really sums up the problem and shows people the human nature of what is, what is happening. Uh, we compare the beginning of this country to the beginning of a journey. And to build this journey, take this journey, we built this big, beautiful wagon. And the purpose of the wagon was to carry all the supplies we would need to take the journey. Plus, we made room for all the people that could not, in our, in our society, in our family, that could not take the journey otherwise, the very young, the very old, the infirmed, anybody in need uh, that couldn't take the journey, we made room for them on the wagon. So we loaded up the wagon with the supplies, loaded the people up, and we started to push the wagon. Well, we quickly realized that pushing a wagon that nobody was steering was very unproductive. So we elected some people from our midst to go to the front of the wagon, grab onto the poles connected to the front wheels, scout ahead, and steer the wagon for us as we pushed it. So everybody got in their place. They knew their position. We started our journey, and it was a very, very uh, good journey. We were making a lot of progress, and things were going well. And a very interesting thing happened. The people in the wagon and the people pushing the wagon behind it were right next to each other. And the people in the wagon every day saw how much these people were working, how hard they were working to get the wagon going, and they appreciated what the people were doing for them. So metaphorically, they'd bring water and food to them. If they could get out of the wagon for a little while to lighten the load and walk along, they would do that. And they tried to help each other. And the people that were pushing felt so good about what they were doing. Well, the people in the front 
were looking back and they were saying, this isn't right. You know, these people are working so hard. We're not doing anything. We're two or three times a day. We have to steer the wagon and scout ahead. We, and look at the relationship they have with each other. And we're away from all of that. We can do more. And they really wanted in. So they realized that they had their hands on these poles and they could pull. So they started to pull the wagon. The more they pulled, the stronger they got. The stronger they got, the more they could pull. Until the people that were pushing the wagon started realizing there's a difference. Hey, what's going on? This is becoming much easier. And they realized what the people in front were doing. And they started heaping adulation on the people in front. And then the people in the wagon started heaping uh, the adulation on the people, saying, you guys are great. You didn't have to do this. You're doing everything for us. The more adulation they got, the more they want, the people in the front wanted to pull. Pretty soon, the people in the back realized they were pushing, that if they stopped pushing, the wagon kept going. Well, human nature, <laughs> you're kind of silly pushing a wagon that goes already. It's like pushing a perfectly good car down the road while its engine was going. Uh, and so little by little, they stopped pushing and started walking behind the wagon. At this point, the people that were in the wagon, the people that were pushing, that whole relationship started to fall apart. They were no longer helping each other. They were no longer a part of a job. And that whole relationship was starting to collapse. As a matter of fact, the people that were pushing that now walking behind were looking at the people in the wagon and say, you know, I bet a lot of those people could get out and walk and lighten our load and we'd go faster. And they started actually getting angry and resenting the people in the wagon. And the people in the wagon started resenting those people because they, were, uh, they didn't realize that they, the, these people had to be in the wagon because of their needs. Meanwhile, the people in the front were pushing more and more. Well, after a while, somebody that was walking before that was pushing saw a little space in the wagon, so jumped on for a ride. Then somebody else said, oh, it's our turn now, and they started arguing about whose turn it was for a ride until they started moving back all the people that had to be on the wagon, moving back the supplies, and piling on the wagon. The more they piled on, the heavier the wagon got, the harder it was for the people to pull it, so it started slowing down and slowing down until the people in the front could no longer pull it because everybody was piling on. And the people in the front looked back at a wagon full of people piled on that used to love and care for each other that now are piled on a wagon that wasn't even moving anymore. And that's what's happening in this country. Uh, there's no joy in giving. There's no dignity in receiving. We're pulling each other apart. We're mad at each other. And the government, the people that we're pulling, can't pull it anymore. And so it's just going to stop, and we'll have some type of revolution that usually a lot of people get hurt uh, and and – that's what we feel is going to happen. So it's well, kind of a metaphor. And notice in the metaphor, nobody did anything wrong. The people in the front, everything was for altruistic reasons. It was just human nature. Now, I hear what you're saying. So, it's, that's an interesting metaphor. And um, it, the level of anger is something that probably doesn't get as much um, attention right. as it should. Because, you know, I'm going to divert a little bit, but... There's a guy that I'm friends with that is very, very, very politically conservative, and I'm not. Um, mm -hmm. And he and I used to interact on social media, and it would go badly every time. Right. When we were in person, things were great. We were two friends talking. We could have a beer and, and, and interact and get along, and everything was fine. But when you remove that level of humanity, that level of personal interaction, things mm -hmm. go... And, and social media, I'm speaking specifically of Facebook in this case, which right. causes its own problems because he would say something, I would respond. Next thing you know, some friend of his who does not know me 
starts shoot, you know, taking shots at me. Occasionally, I might be lured into a bit of a combative mode, which helps no one. But right. whatever. And it's, it's it, there's the, the 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 way social media works and the way the country works now. There's so much detachment that it's really easy for misdirected anger, hatred, whatever. When you say right. a revolution, what like how do you envision that taking place? Because I've well, talked about in, this in the past. I'm sorry. Go on. No, so I've talked about this on on, on the show with with my, my co-host Steve. That for years I've been hearing people talk about a civil war, and I'm like, that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a north right. versus south. However, right. we are seeing pockets of violence in a variety of parts of our culture or country, um, right. where you know, there's very angry people who feel like they are being, you know, abused, you know, disrespected, whatever. And we, uh, we have a lot of guns in this country. I own a stupid number of them. Um, uh, and, you know, the idea that we could fall into pockets of anger and hatred and violence is not insane. And I wish it was. Well, the revolution, we can look back at history. And the revolution, most revolutions... Um, are are not with guns; they're with ideas. And mo- democracies always degrade into one of two things: either socialism, which then turns into a dictatorship, or it goes right to a dictatorship. You can look at the back the Athenian Empire, the Roman Empire, but more uh, in a more recent case, Italy. Italy had a very good democracy until people were in pain, things started happening, and Mussolini came in. Hitler, too. Uh, democracy. Germany was a, a somewhat of a democracy. And I mean, Hitler was elected three times. Um, <laughs> but the problem was the Germans were in so much pain because of all the uh, things that were created against them after the war. Uh, and yeah, World they were War I, the, having trouble. The, yeah. And Hitler gave them pride again in what they were doing, what they were, and uh, brought the economy back. Those were revolutions, but they, they weren't civil wars. So, but the, every democracy in history has gone that way. You know, if you don't understand history, you're condemned to repeat it. And, right. Uh, to, to quote a phrase. So what we have to understand, uh, what we feel, is dem- democracy is an incomplete system. And it always fails from that. We, we call it a four-legged uh, stool with only three legs. Eventually it collapses. And um, I can tell you how we explain that. We, we basically have three systems that we run on right now in this country. We have a political system, a legal system, and an economic system. We believe, and this is in our book, that our political and legal system are the best ever designed by people to govern themselves. Uh, with the, the, if you actually read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they're incredible documents, especially when you think of when they were written. And their understanding of human nature and checks and balances were really pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, there were some things they didn't see coming, which is why these things weren't covered back then. But uh, they are pretty in, uh, incredible documents, and we think they're the best ever created. Our economic system is capitalism, which is, again, the best economic system ever devised uh, to deliver goods and services in a practical, uh, effective, uh, efficient way to uh, breed creativity, breed wealth, breed jobs. Um, and it's actually the only type of economic system that fits into a democracy because you need a free uh, economy to have a free, a free system. You need a free market to have a, a free system. And capitalism is the best free market system we ever created. 
But capitalism has two negative dynamics. The first one is it creates dislocations. I'm from Rochester, New York, and actually the best example here was Kodak. Uh, the, the industry went I'm from, very familiar uh, with Kodak. My uncle worked for 20, for 20 years, so you're hitting a, right. well, you're hitting the, a nerve the, with me. The, the industry went from film to digital, and 60,000 people lost their job. Uh, that constantly happens in, in capitalism. You have uh, incredible amount of creativity, technologies change, and it dislocates people. It's a strong enough system that eventually they'll be reabsorbed, but in the, middle, in the, in the meantime, uh, there is... Uh, a lot of pain. Uh, so that's one negative dynamic. The second dynamic is the more serious one. And this is what we realized. Now, I was one of these guys in the 80s that said the, the, uh, the tide raises all boats, uh, the trickle-down theory is correct. But in our research in the 90s and, and since then, uh, and you can see it clearly now, that's not true. Capitalism polarizes wealth. And the, an easy way to understand it is if you ever play the game Monopoly, which everybody has, Monopoly is just a microcosm of capitalism. If you play it long enough, one person ends up with all the money and the game's over. Capitalism creates that same type of thing. Now, we don't want to get rid of capitalism because it's such a, a, great, um, a, a great system, but we have to have a way to remediate that polarization. Uh, and and that, that is the problem. How do we remediate the effects that capitalism has without affecting capitalism? And that's what we, that's when we, that, that came to us about 1993, 94 after, you know, um, when I say us, uh, during my, my, my uh, studies of this and, and talking to people, I met a Dr. Marcus Robinson. Uh, and uh, Marcus and I come from different backgrounds. He's African American, very bright though, extremely bright. And um, we, we were looking for the same things. Although we came from different backgrounds, we loved our country. And we could see there were problems, couldn't figure out why. So in, this, in about seven years, we came up with the problem, what the problem is, which is what I just, just said, that uh, capitalism polarizes wealth, and that creates all the other polarizations. Uh, so why can't we fix it? That was the next question. Now that we knew the problem, what do you do about it? Well, any system uh, needs management. In this country... In, in our society, in almost every society, we, it's a binary choice. Either government manages it or the private sector manages it. Well, in the book, in Chapter 9, we have 12 reasons why government cannot manage. And they have nothing to do with politics. They're all common sense. I'll give you two of them. Uh, government was made by the Founding Fathers in the Constitution. Its main job was to create laws, regulations, and to audit us and enforce the laws. And uh, that is their job. To do that, the Founding Fathers did not want monolithic thought. They wanted very diverse thought. They felt all sides should be heard from before you make a law, before you make a regulation, uh, which is true. So they made government very competitive and somewhat adversarial um, in creating laws. And, you know, you can read history in the 1800s, how oh, they, uh, they used to have fights in, in Congress. Somebody hit somebody over the head with a cane. After yeah, I, was, I remember, but, I remember the story. They, they, they would argue about the laws and everything, which is what it should be. But when you start to manage things, it's different. The Founding Fathers only gave government very limited managing, the, the military, the legal system, the infrastructure of the country, and some other smaller things. They never envisioned gov government having a Social Security system or a health care system or an education system. Never envisioned that. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to that if you want later. But um, So... When you manage something, when, when you're creating laws, that's good to have that adversarial competitive nature because it brings out all the ideas. 
But when you're managing, that doesn't work. Would you invest in a company where half the managers of the company want it to go broke and go bankrupt? Would you go into surgery where half your surgical team wants you to die? At any one time, and this is just human nature, it's not their fault, because the way it's set up being competitive, when the Democrats are in, for instance, if everything's going well, the Republicans would never get in. If the Republicans are in and everything's going well, the Democrats would never get in. So the other, one side or the other is always trying to make the other side fail. It's trying to ask a football team to ask the other team win. No, they're going to do everything they can to, to make it lose. So the setup is wrong. We're asking an organization to manage these incredibly important uh, programs where half the management wants it to fail at any time. So that's one reason why government can't manage. And I'll just give you one more. There are 10 of these, and they're all common sense like this. The other reason, the second reason we bring up is uh, government was made very resistant to change. The founding fathers did not want laws changing every four years or, or uh, the Constitution changing every four years when other ideas came in. So they made it very resistant to change. They felt that any decision government made was of such importance that it should be resistant. It should be thought of, uh, compromised, and, and resistant to change. We have a saying it would take an act of Congress to change something, which means it's almost impossible. Uh, which is fine for laws, but again, in management. I do turnarounds in startups. I said, I, I've uh, started up or turned around uh, or tried to turn around 22 companies in my life. I have never started one where I haven't made mistakes. And the whole success of the endeavor, and I don't care if you're knitting a sweater or starting a company, the whole endeavor is going to be successful only if you can see your mistakes quickly and change them. And sometimes it's trial and error. So when you start an education system, a healthcare system, a social security system, uh, a war on drugs, whatever, you're going to make mistakes. If you can't see the mistakes and change them quickly, it's going to fail. So we've given responsibility to these incredibly important programs that need dynamic change. Now, it might be your first assumptions were wrong, or it might be five years down the road something changed. But whatever the reason, you have to be able to change dynamically, and we've given that responsibility to an organization that by its nature can't change. It's not the people that are representatives' fault, it's the system they're in. So those are two reasons why government, important reasons why government can't manage things. Uh, and as I say, we don't blame anybody. We don't blame conservatives, we don't blame liberals, we don't blame our representatives. Uh, anything we see, is, uh, the corruption that you might see and the dysfunction is all caused by the system, not by their personalities. Uh, it's a very seductive place, and if people, you, make a, you put people in a seductive environment and it becomes seduced, don't blame the people. Your system did not take human nature into, into account. And that's, what, that's wrong. There's 10 other reasons that are very similar to those uh, about accountability, all sorts of things. But, so government cannot manage. So that only leaves us with the private sector. And uh, the private sector doesn't have the scope they don't have the incentive, they don't have the financial ability, or quite frankly, they don't have the ethical dependency to run these, these programs by themselves. So we don't have, if the government can't do it and the private sector can't do it, we don't have a tool in our toolbox to run these programs. We don't have a tool in, this, our, in our toolbox to create these programs. And so we're floundering. And as the polarization takes place, and you can see now, 10% uh, of the people own, I think, 70% of the assets in the country. It's polarizing more and more. You have these incredible billionaires now that we never had before. You can see the polarization taking place. So you need a way 
to, to mediate that. And it's for the sake of these big companies because the people that are losing the money are your customers. And eventually you're not going to have any customers left and you're going to have a revolution and you're going to lose your business. Uh, you know, either the, either the government will take it over, socialism that happened in China, for instance, years ago, uh, or someone like a Hitler takes over, uh, or a Putin. Um, it, it's, a, it's a natural dialectic of a democracy to fail that way. And those are the problems. And so we need a way to, to fix it. Now, I want to give you a, 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 a chance to, like, you know, suggest a, a solution. But I also want you to have a chance to promote your book and and your team. So if, if, if you'll accept a lob for a sales pitch, here it is. <laughs> well, the book, the book has a solution in it. Uh, chapter 10 of the book has the caring system. Uh, what well, we did, did, give, uh, give the title and the, and the authors and, and everything if, you, if you'd like. Okay. The name of the book is Caring for Democracy, The American Fix. And, and uh, sorry. <laughs> and um, the author, uh, myself and uh, Dr. Robinson, are the authors. And okay. right now it's only available on our website, the instituteforcaring.org. Uh, um, and you can get it. It's a, it's a not-for-profit, so it's a $25 donation, and we will send the book out. Um, and it has... These things that I'm just talking about is included in, in, in the book. Uh, in the first nine chapters, we go through all the different reasons uh, why we need, we need a new system. Uh, and democracy need, needs a new system. And actually, one of our academics said something to me a while ago um, that this, and he's been in, in political science for 50 years. He said this is the first and only thing he has ever seen that creates a fourth system that doesn't try and fix the problem within the system we have, because as we point out, there is no fix in the system we have. We don't have anybody to manage. This is a fourth system, what we call system of social remediation. And uh, it not only solves the problem, but it makes the existing legal, economic, and political system stronger. And uh, that, that's the great thing about it. So our, our challenge now is to get it out to people to start to understand it. And what we'd like to do is do a pilot study in a state, possibly one state, and created a caring state with the caring system involved in it, and show people and show the, show everybody, uh, you know, the effectiveness, the efficiency of it. it it'll save 40 to 60 percent on the taxes we pay now for those those uh, you know the uh, what we call entitlement programs. And not only that, it, it gets more resources to the people that need it in a much more humane way. It doesn't steal their dignity, and uh, it, it makes them feel good about it, about what's going on. And the people that are putting the money into it, taxpayers, what we call taxpayers now, uh, feel they really have, have, have control over it, they're involved in it, uh, and uh, it, it brings people together. It saves money and creates a wonderful uh, feeling. Uh, I mean, around you, the country. You, you, you've used the word uh, dignity multiple times, and it's a very important yep. word because you're right. When people feel like they're being coddled or whatever word you want to use, there is a, a lack of dignity in that. And then at the same time, you know, I, I want to live in a country where the, the poor and the, the underprivileged are taken care of but right. at the same time, you'd like them to get the opportunity to, you know, grow and, and, and I'm going to steal your word, experience dignity. I mean, 
you know, it's 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 funny the, the the way things have gone, especially since COVID, have been it's been weird because there's no there's a lot of people who started working from home because they could, and mm-hmm. you know, there's some great things about that. I've personally experienced some fun times. I've been on uh, you know Zoom calls where I was wearing a business shirt and gym shorts, um, right? <laughs> which, but at the same time. You know the, the the lack of connection can take away from your uh, you know human interactions and um, your involvement. I guess is the best word I can come up with. Um, right. And so when it when it comes to uh, you know giving people what they need, but also trying to help them gain what they need on their own, that's a difficult balance, and it's one that we have not done a great job of in this country. Well. You can't you can't get the balance in the system we have. Let me just uh, uh, read something that uh, somebody sent me today, as a matter of fact. It's a lesson on irony. And it says, once in a while, we have to stand back in awe of our government. And it says, the food stamp program administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture is, just, is proud to be distributing the greatest number of free meals and food stamps ever to 46 million people. Meanwhile, the National Park Service, administrated by the U.S. Department of Interior, asks us not to please do not feed the animals. And their stated reason is, the animals will grow dependent on handouts and will not learn to take care of themselves. So you have two parts of the government. One, you know, uh, saying that if you, uh, the nature uh, uh, and actually uh, of doing things can have adverse effects. And my answer to that, which I understand, uh, and that's what a lot of people feel, um, but the real answer to that is that what do you do uh, for the people until they can take care of themselves? I said, great point. However, what is the alternative until these people can take care of themselves? Do we let them and their children starve to death? And I said, the real irony is the existing attempts at a solution, which is handing out free food and food stamps through the government, actually creates the vicious cycle and growth of the problem. Uh, and that's kind of that's what that's the problem we came up with. Uh, and, and to to go back to the wagon story, the more the government pulls, the less the people push. And the people have, if put in the right system, have so much more power than the government to help people because it's done locally uh, and it, it 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 is done directly. And again, it makes people feel good about giving and have dignity in receiving. What the caring system says to everybody, everybody in their life at one time or another is in need. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The thing that you have to do is when people come out to help you, appreciate that. And the way you appreciate it is not to pay them back someday because that doesn't work, but to get on your, if you're, it's possible, become self-sufficient and then pay it forward and get help people. That's where the dignity comes in from, from, from uh, receiving, is that you are going to try and make yourself self-sufficient with these gifts of love from people, which is in the terms of money, but you're going to pay it forward someday. And that becomes the legacy of the people that helped you. And that's a wonderful legacy for people to have, that they've helped actually helped people, and uh, that legacy is being uh, put, paid forward. And eventually there will be more, many more givers than there will receivers because the system itself makes people self-sufficient. So Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I, there's the 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 
trying to think of the right way to say it. There, you know, when you, when you do the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing, which is not mm-hmm. what you did, but that's the one of the common refrains. You know, it's easy to say from a perspective of uh, I'll say myself. I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to have you know, uh, uh, my father was a college professor. I was gonna go to college. I was gonna have a chance and. When you look at the dynamic and the disparity of, of, you know, what happens if you're in, I mean, I'm trying to think of a Rochester neighborhood, which I can't do off the top of my head. But, you know, when you're from Amherst or Orchard Park, which are suburbs of Buffalo that are very affluent. I grew up in West Seneca, which is kind of middle of the road. Um, you know, yep. the, the public education that you get is very different than, say, city of Buffalo. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and. My cousin Jeff, his brother is a teacher in the city of Buffalo, and I hear all the stories, and they're awful. And I don't know, like, what you got to do to get that cycle. I'm not. I'm not trying to give you know everyone the. Let me let me let me give you. Uh, I'm very active in education. If you think Buffalo is bad, <clears throat> Rochester is the worst in the country. I don't know if you know that. I did not know the that. Lowest rated school system in the country. Wow, but that's that's say- quite a title. <laughs> It's true. Let me just say this quickly. Education, we're not even in the top 25 in the world anymore. Healthcare, we still, with all the money we're spending and everything, and I, I'm on the board of the University of Rochester Medical Center. I've been involved in healthcare for years. Uh, we still have millions of people, millions of people, that don't have access to decent healthcare. Um, our welfare system is creating generational dependency, stealing dignity from people. When you have to go in line, uh, a, a girl once said to me that she looked at who was on welfare. She says, "I look at welfare as road rage indoors." Um, okay. Our war on drugs uh, is creating huge data. Number one, it creates uh, a terrible toll on uh, our law enforcement agencies who are getting killed and innocent people are getting killed. The problem is getting worse. We punish people for a disease that they have. And the worst thing is we're making multi-billionaires out of the most evil people in the world. Uh, and it, everything we're trying to do is, is having the wrong effect. The way we treat our veterans, is, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Um, our Social Security system is going broke, and yet it doesn't even pay nearly what people need to be able to retire with dignity uh, and comfort. What do all these things have in common? What do they all have in common? They are all managed and administrated and funded by government. When do we say, uncle, this doesn't work? <laughs> and in the book, we give those 12 reasons why it doesn't work. And it's not our representative's fault. It's not the conservative's fault. It's not the liberal's fault. A liberal will say, a conservative, well, a liberal will say, we have an absolute obligation to help people when they're in need in a democracy. We can't have people starving in the streets. Everybody should have good health care, good education, et cetera, and they're absolutely right. Conservatives say government can't do it, and they're absolutely right. What does that get us? And all they do is argue about those particular things. Um, you know, progressives, I think that's a very poor term. Teddy Roosevelt said uh, uh, a democracy must be progressive. And what we say to that, and it's in the book, is that when you're in a hole, and you want to get out, to keep digging is not progressive. And that's what these, what we call progressives, want to do. They want to keep making it worse. They want government to do more and more. It doesn't work. 
So we, the problem is there's no alternative out there now. This is my point that the, the, this, our academic advisor said. There's, caring is the only alternative he's ever seen, and it would work. It would change this country. It would change other emerging d democracies around, around the world. Um, and, and that's why we're so adamant about it. But we don't blame anybody. It's, it's a systemic problem, not a people problem. And our, our representatives get so frustrated because there's no answer that they can find. And let me say one other thing about this, uh, the, the, the logical dynamic of this. Um, what happens, again, historically, is that what we call liberals in this country get more and more power. The reason for that human nature is that if you take money from Peter and give it to Paul, you can always count on Paul's support. So the more government gets involved, the more people are dependent on the uh, government dole, the more they're going to vote for the liberals. Conservatives now are getting to know that, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. They cannot win at the ballot box long term. And so they are looking for ways, either legal or illegal in some cases, when you get into the, uh, out to the extremes, to overcome this because they see it's going to destroy our country, and they're right. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's a systemic problem that nobody has an answer for, so all we have is frustration and anger. And uh, that's what this new system creates, an alternative that I guarantee you would work. And let me just go through, when we decided we needed a new system, can I just go through the four pillars of the system sure. of what we, what we did? Absolutely. Uh, the first pillar is that um, it's got to be fiscally responsible, which means if you, as an income producer, give a dollar to help somebody, most of that dollar should get to the people <laughs> that need it. We did a study, and there's been studies before and, and after that agree, or some people say we're actually uh, low, but of every dollar you pay in taxation, only 30 cents gets to where it's supposed to be. It costs 70 cents to go through what we call the government sieve, which is the IRS to, correct it, to, to collect it, the uh, legislature to decide what to do with it, which you can't imagine how expensive that is, and we point that out in the book, and then the uh, social services that distribute the money, plus the fraud and misappropriation. 70 cents it costs. Most non-for-profits, well-run non-for-profits, only spend 11 cents out of every dollar on fundraising and administration. That's a 59 cent difference. If we could just replicate the way that the nonprofits raise money and distribute it, we could cut taxes 59% and get exactly the same amount of money to the people that, we, uh, that we're giving to now. Now, we're not suggesting that. We're suggesting government, not but it just gives you an idea of the waste in government. So it's got to be fiscally responsible. The second, it's got to be practical, uh, which means it's got to be easily accessible by people in need. It's got to be easily audited by our representatives to make sure that it's, uh, things are done fairly. But here's the most important thing. It, and I think this is logical, if it's to help people in need, it should only go to people in need and only when they're in need and only the amount they need. I think that makes sense. I get Social Security, I get Medicare, I don't need either of them. And I can't even get out of it, actually. Um, I guess you can send Social Security back, but it's not human nature for most people to do that. Sure. But it's not fair for, you know, I go out to eat and the server is paying Social Security so that I can get my Social Security uh, and my Medicare. It just is not, not fair. So it's impractical what we have now, so the system's got to be practical. The third thing is the most important, is what I've been sort of harping on. 
it's got to be psychologically and philosophically, philosophically compatible with who we are as Americans and who we are as human beings. And that is the joy of giving and the dignity of receiving. If we don't have that, we kill the human spirit, and that kills our culture. And lastly, the fourth thing, it's got to be culturally nurturing. It's got to make us proud to be Americans. We are the most philanthropic people in the world, yet the world looks at us as capitalist pigs. We're not. But the system has to make the world look at us as the good people that we are, and it's got to make our kids be, to be proud that they're Americans, and it's got to give us a pride in what we do. So when we started design the system, those are the four pillars that we used to design it. And uh, I think they all make sense. Now, what you said makes sense. Um, and, and you know, again, dignity has been the, the pillar that keeps coming through. And I get what you're saying. Right. Um, now, I do want to uh, back up and talk about the war on drugs because okay. I think that that has been an absolute disaster. Our prison system is a disaster. Um, right. we, we, have a, we have a caring approach to the war on drugs. I you want me to tell you what it is? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Now, I haven't gone through the funding mechanism, and I'm not going to go through it because that's like an hour talk in itself. All right, yeah. That's and, in chapter and, 10. And where was I? Where, 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 buy the book, people. <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. As a, I'm telling people, buy the book, and you can get the, the, the deeper details. But, yes, please, right. please go and, on. And the funding mechanism is the crux of it, too. So, But just take my word for it now. There would be a very efficient, effective way to fund that's guaranteed to fund this. So what we're looking at, what we think should happen is number one, the penalties for selling drugs should even be worse than they are now. But the penalties for taking drugs shouldn't be a penalty. Uh, if you're selling it, a big penalty. That's number one. What we do is, what, is open up caring clinics, caring drug clinics in, in every market. So in, in, in Rochester or Buffalo, we probably have four or five or six of these, and they'd probably be affiliated with the hospitals. So you can go in and nobody knows what you're doing. It, it, it would all be uh, HIPAA compliant and everything. And what you do is you register that you need drugs. And these clinics are uh, manned uh, by doctors, nurses, social workers, hopefully clergy would be in there. So every time somebody goes in, they're surrounded by people that want to help them. Now, you don't have to get the help, and you don't have to listen to sermons. You can go in, you tell them what drug you want, they will give you the drug there uh, in the amount that you know that you're not going to die from it, and they will give you the amount you need. Some people will never ask for the help, but there will come a time with most people where they're going to want help. And it's a caring organization, and when they go in and they're ready, there's people there to help them. Instead now, they go back to the pusher, which wants to get them on even deeper and wants them to get their friends on it. So if you have a choice, once you're hooked, once a pusher gets you on, to go and steal or prostitute yourself or kill people to get money for drugs, or just go to a, a, a caring clinic and you can get the drugs you want, what are you going to do? Now, most people will do that. So what it does is once a, a pusher gets you hooked on it, there's no profit in it. So it takes the, and the penalty for pushing it is worse, probably life in prison. So this will, this would create the, the, the cartels would go broke, uh, the pushers on the street would, would, would go broke, and there's no incentive uh, to, uh, to do this. So it's not legalizing it, it's dealing with it as a disease yeah, decriminalizing. and criminalizing, criminalizing the sale of it. Um, and, you know, the, parts of this have been tried in other countries have been successful. I think Switzerland has a program similar to that. 
Yeah, but this is this has that extra step in it uh, that every time you go in, there are people there that want to help you, that want to care for you. And not only that, but the, there's six court carrying organizations the way we've d developed it, and all six of them are not siloed. They all are together. So somebody that wants to get off drugs possibly needs to get some type of education. They need a job. They need other counseling. They need, might need a place to live. So each caring organization, and I, I'll give you the six of them, uh, the one is, uh, one is for education, one is for health care, one is welfare, human services, uh, one is for the war on drugs, one's for Social Security, and um, they sell welfare, uh, and one's for veterans okay. to take care of our veterans. So those are the six caring organizations, and they work together. They're not siloed like our education system is completely siloed from our our welfare system. You know, I've been very active in education, and believe me, the nutrition and the home life of these kids has a lot to do with how their education goes. They're, they're not separate. You know, a lot of people say, well, the problem is poverty, not education. And it's completely wrong. It's the other way around, if anything. The problem with, with, uh, the problem with education is poverty. Is that what I'm, that's what people say. The problem with poverty is education. They don't have good education. But you've got to put them together. Uh, you, have to, you have parents now that were not educated themselves. Somehow, not somehow, with the caring organizations, they are together with, with education, health care, and everything, and people are taken care of in a very, very efficient and effective way, and a very humane way. And, and it just changes the dynamics of the entire uh, function uh, of, of helping people. You know, you know I, I, I want to... Um... I don't want to say challenge you, but I want to put this out there and, and, and hear what you have to say. Because when you talk about the war on drugs, the fact that the government, the federal government, treats marijuana like it's the same as heroin, cocaine, opioids, whatever. Well, heroin's an opioid. But mm -hmm. you know, the fact right. that they put them in the same category is ridiculous. Now, I will, I agree. I will give you a little bit of a detail that I've talked about on the show before. Um, I had not consumed cannabis in my life prior to being 47 years old. Um, <laughs> I started at 47. I kind of like it. I'm not going to lie. When I come to Buffalo for Christmas, I will be visiting the reservations where I can legally get it. But it's insane that that... You know, look, when you use the, word, ter, use the term drugs, it's, a, it's a, a loose term because caffeine is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Right. Nicotine is a drug. Cannabis is a drug, and all the things I just mentioned are, you know, I mean, you can abuse any of them. I'm not, I'm not saying right. that they're completely innocent, but when you Jim, mix, yep. If I could, again, when we start talking specifics like this, we get a little out of, but let, let, me, let me just explain what the problem is. I know what you're talking about, and I agree with you 100%, but let me go into the problem. Let me use healthcare as an example. Sure. When we give government the responsibility for health care. What did they do? These people know nothing about health care. These are business people, they're teachers, whoever they come from, maybe they're a doctor, but, and they understand medical medicine, but they don't understand health care in most cases. So what did they do? They go to the insurance companies, they go to the drug, uh, drug companies, they go to the hospitals and doctors for advice on how do we set up a health care system. They're letting the facts basically design the hen house security. <laughs> and it's not their fault. It's, it's, who else can they go to? 
once there's caring organizations, and again, in the book, you'll really read what a caring organization is, and this is where it comes to what you were saying. The government would not, by itself, say marijuana is the same thing as, as, as uh, heroin, because I agree with you, and I would be willing to bet you that the caring organization for drugs would be made up of people that understand the drug problem. They're not, they're not uh, lobbyists, they're not politicians, they're experts in drugs. And they would tell the government what should be and shouldn't be illegal and legal. And the government would listen to them uh, and, and create the laws based on that kind of input. Now, they'd also have other input, but this would be a very powerful organizational structure, caring, that would have experts telling them what to do. So instead of us arguing about whether what marijuana should be, let's admit that the government does not have the expertise to make those decisions, yet we're forcing them to make those decisions, and so you get these crazy things because they're being made by people that are paid by lobbyists, that are paid by other people, maybe even drug cartels. The last thing <laughs> the drug cartels would want is the caring, the caring system. That's the last thing they'd want because it takes all the, prop, uh, the profit out. But if we have real experts, and by the way, caring organizations are not public or private. They're kind of a combination, a very new hybrid type of system. And you, for instance, if you'd want, could be on the board of the local caring organization. They have three levels. They have national, regional, which would be state, and then they have local. And 95% of the work's done locally. So you, would have, you could be part of the, if drugs were your, your big big thing, you could be on the board of the local caring organization and you would have access to the very top that actually goes to government and negotiates with government. So people can get directly involved in these things. Uh, so I, I do uh, want to I deflect and say that saying. drugs are not my thing. I do happen to be a regular cannabis user now, but I'm not. Uh, I, I agree I, with you. Cannabis should not be put in the same level as drug. It should be in the same level as alcohol, as far as right. I'm concerned. But I'm not an expert either. <laughs> so, uh, but we would, with a caring system, we would have experts. And these, the boards of these caring organizations would be experts in drugs. They wouldn't be business people, bankers, or anything like that. Or uh, They would be people that are experts in drugs. It would be a national caring or, or national organizations made up of people who are experts and that you can actually talk to to try and influence. And, but the chances are they already know what, what, what you're feeling. Logic is logic, and it's very important. Government does not use logic. That's why so many weird things happen. Well, and, and, and frankly, my big thing with, with government, so I'm not a small government guy necessarily, but government has become a celebrity game. Every person in Congress wants to be a TV star, not do what's right. And you're, you're using a term, though, small government, big government, that tries to analyze the system how it is. What you have to do, um, it, it, do, do you know what the, you, you use the word, we use the word bytes now with computers. Sure. You know, bits and bytes. <laughs> you know, until 30 years ago, there's no such thing as a byte or a bit. <laughs> and if computers went away, it would be a useless word. So big government and small government are useless terms under caring. Government would be government. Uh, and they would do what government is supposed to do, and caring organizations would do what they're supposed to do. So it's not a matter of big government or small government. It's a matter of government doing what they're supposed to do and what they can do. And all you have to do is follow the Constitution. 
The, everything was in the Constitution. There was never anything in the Constitution about welfare, about Social Security, about education and health care, none of that. There were the words to promote the general welfare. And everything that has been done is based on those words. But promoting the general welfare is not the same as managing and financing and administrating the general welfare. They never wanted uh, the government to do that. They want to promote it, which means help us, the people, the society, to help each other. So we have to stop using words like big government, small government. Those terms go away with caring, completely go away. Okay. And right. go, go, sorry. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I didn't want to cut you off. It's a, you know, it's a huge paradigm shift. And I realize that it's a monumental change. But once you understand the system, it makes it's just common sense the way the system works. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, you, you can't explain. It's like trying to explain the legal system right. uh, in, in an hour. Right. This is a real system. It's, it's not just an idea. It's a system. You're, you're 100% right. It puts the responsibility for these unbelievably important programs that will sustain our democracy, sustain our country, bring our people together. That's what the, it does. And uh, the government's part of it. Government audits and government regulates it. You know, we bring up, if I could go into this a little bit, well, there's so much in this book. It, it, it's got a whole, it's, it, it's not a book you can read. It's a book you got to study, actually. But okay. one of the things we talk about is we look at a, at a business the government decided to run, and we look at a business the government decided to, to uh, regulate. The business they decided to run was the post office. Actually, it's in the Constitution. Well, government runs the post office. Uh, for the first hundred and something years, they were making money, losing money, you know, whatever. But in 2005, uh, the unions got the government, which they would eventually anyway, and the votes. So government put in new pension plans, new payroll uh, rules and everything. In the last... Since 2006, the government has the post office has lost 60 billion dollars. Last year, or the year before, it might be by now, uh, they lost eight billion dollars. So it's getting worse. Meanwhile, FedEx and UBS, UBS, uh, UPS, UPS uh, made I believe 4.7 trillion a billion, and um, uh, FedEx made 5.3 trillion in the same business. Okay, so that's what happens when government runs something eventually it degrades the industry they decided to regulate was the banking business last year the banking business made 233 billion dollars incredibly successful so that's the difference when government regulates and when government tries to manage uh and you know that, that's just an example unfortunately um, unfortunately we're, we're going up on an hour and i think we could probably talk about this for hours can, and hours uh, but no, this is a very interesting point, a very interesting, a uh, very good example. Um, uh, I do want to give you a chance to do a pitch again and um, see if you have any closing thoughts. But like I said, we're right at an hour and uh, okay. we'll be publishing this right around Christmas. So um, okay. happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Dick, thank you so much for coming on. And the floor is yours for your, uh, your book pitch. Well... Uh, this has been created by uh, a tremendous amount of different minds. It's not myself and Marcus. We went to Washington at least 40 or 50 times. We went to Heritage Foundation, Brookings, um, uh, Cato. We got, this was done over a period of actually 30 years, this the creation of the caring system. Uh, 
it is, if you want to put it in Christmas terms, this is an unbelievable present to the United States and to democracies in general. And it will solve so many problems and it will stop the deterioration of our society. And all we have to do is make people aware of it. And that's a daunting task uh, to do that. And we started the Institute for Caring, but we need people to read this book, to understand it, and talk to other people about it to get this out to the American people. Because once it's out, I believe it will go viral. Uh, so that's my pitch. There's your pitch. And uh, give the title again. It's called Caring for Democracy, the American Fix. And the website? The, pardon me? The website? Yeah, uh, the, the website is caring, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Institute for Caring.org. The Institute for Caring.org. Um, yep. Nick, I, th thank you very much for coming on. I Jim, thank you for letting me come on. I it, appreciate it very it, much. And it, I hope some people that are listening to this will uh, be interested. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can call you. You have my number, and please have them call me. <laughs> oh, great. Now I'm going to flood my phone. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No problem. Email you. <laughs> uh, Dick, thank you again. Good talking to you. Uh, really enjoy the insights, and uh, we'll be putting this out in a couple days. Um, I'll, I'll shoot you a text when it, when it gets published, and if you can forward it however, however you'd like. It's public domain. Um, again, okay. I, I know that if I allowed it to happen, you and I would be talking for hours, and I would be yes. getting into... Uh, there's, there's so much more to the book than I've even said. Well, there's the philosophy, the psychology of it, everything. It's clear that you and I, I think we're on the same page in the, in the sense that... Um, you know, I'm steal your word again. Dignity and 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 you know respect for humanity is something that right. we're struggling with in this country, and yep. you clearly are trying to make a, a, a dent and you know push things into the right direction. And I have a ton of respect for that. So once again, Merry Christmas! Thank you very much. Thank and you. I'll t well, thank you, Jim. Ho hopefully, if I end, if I end up uh, coming to Rochester, I'll reach out to my cousin and we'll see if we can get together for a drink. Uh, I'd love that. And if you want to talk more about this, you know, if, if you get enough response from this, I can, there's a whole other part of this that I can talk about caring that's in the book. But um, I think people would be very interested in, in the, it goes into culture and things like that. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you again. Look forward to meeting you sometime. Likewise. Later. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.